we're going to find it really funny that every power structure in an organization is a pyramid and that there are these few people, namely one called the CEO, who makes all the decisions. And let's be honest, the buck stops with that person. That is the dumbest, silliest way to construct cooperation in an organization. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder Nazar and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. We've got a great episode for you today. The guest is Joe McClinsky, and he is the author of the book, Shift the Work. And in this conversation, we really dive into one of the big themes around the core principle of trust inside of an organ, that that's the essential ingredient. We also explore all of the latest research around the intelligence of our hearts and our guts and some of the science that's emerging that those are actually decision-making centers and the necessity of bringing those online and cultivating a culture that actually taps into the intelligence of those three brains. Yeah, and what I love about Joe is he really shares our ethos and mission to revolutionize the entire workforce and drive incredibly high engagement beyond what most people even think is possible inside the workplace. So we're really excited to share this with you. Joe McClinsky is a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and social entrepreneur who believes that an engaged workforce is the key to unlocking human potential. Driven by his deep-rooted passion for building mission-driven cultures, Joe founded Shift, a collective of businesses spanning consulting, executive membership, and venture capitalism, united by their common mission to revolutionize workforce engagement and transform the world. His latest book, Shift the Work, focuses on this very idea. Filled with actionable strategies and inspiring true stories, Shift the Work reveals the revolutionary science behind employee engagement and how readers can use the brains in their head, heart, and gut to transform the workplaces and lives for the better. Always embarking on new adventures, Joe launched his podcast, Shift Happens, which features inspiring icons and influencers such as New York Times bestselling author Dan Pink and three-time New York Times bestseller Tucker Max. Joe, really good to have you here with us. We're honored to have you on the podcast. And one of the first things I want to kick us off with is in your book, you talk about this idea of the three brains, the head, the heart, and the gut. And even that is, I think, a pretty radical idea for most of the business world. So can you share a little bit around what led you to having that as one of the central ideas in your work? Yeah, you bet. So one of the things that I wanted to do about uh, five years ago, coming off of Grow Regardless, it was a pretty pivotal moment for me from a career standpoint. I mean, up until then, we had worked primarily with small to mid-sized businesses. Um, we were really passionate about creating you know, workplaces that really held as a priority this noble aim of, a, of an equitable and fair environment. And as much as that sounds good, I think we'd all agree that that's not exactly a common practice, um, even against some of the more progressive companies. And so as I was on this mission and crusade, what I forgot to do was to be a really good husband and a really good father at the time. My wife was uh, just had our second child, James, 
uh, and was having a, just a terrible time during the pregnancy and a terrible time afterwards with you know a bit of postpartum. And then also James was not well. Meanwhile, I'm being interviewed by every major network and I'm, you know, flying all over the country and I'm, you know, sort of in one part of my life feel like I'm living large and I'm scared to let go of that. And then on the other side, I come home and it just doesn't feel like I, you know, when I wrote the script of how this was all going to go, it was a very different script. And, you know, some of the questions that I was asking myself is, can you really have it all? Can you really be the best dad, the best husband, the best person and a really successful entrepreneur? You know, in other respects, I was, I think, really caught up with, as I said before, like losing that. And, you know, I had a talk coming up for one of our big corporate clients. And it was, again, because of the book. And instead of doing the talk on Grow Regardless, I just spent two weeks, you know, really immersed in like, why do I feel this way? Like All the things I've studied around psychology and, you know, philosophy and sociology, I had dug into science, but never really in earnest. And so as I kept digging, kept digging, kept digging, I got into the biochemistry, I got into the microbiome, I got into how we make decisions. And then I stumbled upon some science that was developed and, and really discovered in the late 50s, where you know scientists found that we had a neuron network, not just you know the billion that we know in our head, but they knew that we also had about 40 million in our heart and we had over 100 million in our digestive tract, our gut, so to speak. And so when you start really unpacking that a bit, you know, we've all heard of neurotransmitters like dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin. I mean, most people, if they have any set, you know, if they've done a little bit of homework here, know that those three really do drive decision makings in a, in a more constructive way. But from a, uh, a destructive way, most human beings walk around in a chronic state of stress all day with just, you know, hopped up on cortisol. So I ended up giving this big keynote address to, you know, nearly 500 plus people on a topic that I hadn't really developed fully yet, but I was just kind of done with Grow Regardless and looking for, frankly, an answer for myself. And I felt like I stumbled upon it. And as I started thinking about how that is metaphorically not a bad analogy for how workplaces are designed, I mean, when you think about following your heart or trusting your gut, these are sayings, these are cliches that we've all said at one time or another, but what does it really mean? And when you think about the practices within HR in organizations or learning development or even just general leadership philosophy and processes, it, it's generally around not the heart and the gut brain, if you will. It's not really trying to bring out the best in people. It's trying to control people. It's trying to put them in kind of a, a path of compliance. And ultimately, at best, they're using compensation as a carrot, right, to step out of the, the dark ages of the way that we used to live. And so all of that, again, is fine in terms of progress, but I just we thought that there could be another way. And so we took this logic, if you will, this framework, built a methodology around it, and have now scaled it to big major corporations, everybody from you know, Microsoft to Kaiser Permanente to lots of other organizations that you know, want to think about their people differently and ultimately get just a very basic premise that you know, the single greatest lever of their company's potential is a more engaged workforce. People who don't dread Mondays, people who don't have the Sunday scaries, people who aren't watching the clock tick down every single day, you know, day in and day out. And so if you want people to lean in, if you want, because the Patriots just won the Super Bowl, you know, you look at a high performing team like Patriots, there's a lot of things that lots of people have written about, but I don't know that anyone's ever really talked about the neuroscience in this way. So we're not the first, but as it relates to corporate America and the way that we're trying to, to re, redefine a better criteria of engagement, that's how Shift the Work was born. 
And I love it because we're really starting to have the science catch up with some of the more intuitive knowledge. And so now you, I would imagine you're going into a company and you're not just saying, follow your heart and listen to your gut. You're actually able to explain this is now our understanding. There's reality behind these statements and it helps to access a little bit more of the scientific rational mindset. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I mean, I am not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, guys like Stephen Kotler, who wrote Stealing Fire with Jamie Wheel, would be in a better position to, to wax poetic on the deep, deep, deep knowledge that we know about neuroscience. But as someone who's researched it quite a bit and really then started to look at all of the air gaps, if you will, that you see in corporate America around the way in which people are treated. And then, frankly, you know, more importantly, I mean, Grover regardless tried to address some of those needs. But I really thought that there wasn't a book that addressed the employee like directly. So what was the path forward for them? I mean, certainly Seven Habits of Highly Successful People written back in the you know, late 80s, early 90s was great. But like there, you know, there's a lot of self-help books that are out there. But from my perspective, there wasn't like a how-to guide to really look forward to Mondays. When you think about asking leaders and, and telling them, hey, you know, the, you know, leading from your heart, leading, trusting your gut, and using your head and, and integrating those things, are there are there guidelines for for how to think about, you know, where to make decisions from in a specific situation? How do you think about that? It's a good question. Part of what we try to do is make this accessible. And so at like a real quick, maybe hack, uh, a way of looking at this is, you know, the brain and the head metaphorically, the way I think about it is a spotlight. It allows you to sort of shift your awareness and attention to other places. And by default, helps you define what your priorities are. Because where you put your calendar or your time, so to speak, as we say here at Shift, is really what your priorities are in a lot of respects. So when we ask organizations often, do you know your top three priorities, something as basic as that? we still get back less than half due. Now, more stunning than that, we ask how much time do you spend on a weekly basis against the half of priorities that you're even aware of? And with an executive team recently, we did this of a multi-billion dollar company. You know, these folks came back and it was 18%. I mean, we're not even past, you know, we're still old school thinking here, like, are you high performing? Are you really productive? Are you doing the things that really matter? As it relates to the heart brain, it, it goes to a different place. So the way that we think about the heart brain is it's almost like a generator, right? Brandon Burchard said this, so I'll give him credit for this comment, which was power plants don't have energy, they generate energy. And the science behind the heart is actually very consistent with that. So your heart is, you know, got 40 million neurons. It's, it's oxytocin, the, the, the neurotransmitter that helps us not eat our young when we're young. The, the heart, by the way, it it tastes, it has more taste buds than your tongue. It remembers if you were to receive a heart, you know, from a, a donor, you would actually have vague memories from the other person. I mean, it's a very interesting organ. Yeah. I once and heard a story you, of a, a ballerina got a heart transplant and all of a sudden started craving chicken nuggets all the time. Yeah. It turns out the person who she got the heart from loved chicken nuggets. Right. And then you go even go to anthropology. We've been hugging for 30,000 years, heart to heart. And, and then when they start to study this and break it down, like just from a, a wave point of view, you guys hugging later? I can see that. That was good. We're big fans of uh, left-sided hugs, which is heart to heart. <laughs> I was hoping that's where you were going. It was like, we used to, I, I, back when, well, back when humanity I, I, was yeah, more unified, I'm we used to hug on the left, um, yeah, 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 heart to yeah. heart. So in any event, the, the way that we think about the heartbreak quickly is it's, it's really connected to your passion. Like, what do you love to do? 
And when you think about, again, developing high performers, they have a tendency to actually love what they do, right? Absolutely. And so when they achieve states of flow or a lot of the things that have been written about being in the zone and getting to that flow state is where things become effortless. So if you're, the brain in the head is about losing a sense of time, we look at the brain in the heart as losing a sense of effort. Like things don't become a, a pushing exercise. They become a pulling exercise. And so quickly then back to the gut. The gut is, I think, the most interesting. Um, it's the place that I probably went down the rabbit hole on the most because, I mean, in a lot of ways, this gut-brain axis that they call it, which is your brain in the gut and the heart and the gut basically send more messages to the brain and the head than the other way around. And that is not the way we thought of things. I mean, again, we thought that everything resides in the head and it, and it sort of does, but there's this interesting connection between the way that our microbiome processes, not just what we eat and how we think, but it has trillions of microbiomes and it and it does create either, you know, in one case, 70% of the serotonin is produced in the gut and just in a very coincidental way, 70% of the cortisol of your body is produced in the gut. So would you uh, so advocate, people, you know, companies moving towards having probiotic snacks and beverages in their kitchen of actually supporting, you know, because because part of this is, okay, this is a fairly radical idea for the mainstream business world that right. we, we're using more than just our brains to make decisions. And because all of this right. is happening, whether regardless of whether you believe it or not, I think is what a really interesting thing. But what are the, how do we build a culture and an organization that actually encourages us to start leveraging more of the intelligence of our hearts and of our guts? I will, I'll answer that. Let me, let me give you one more piece on the gut, which is, it is a place that we come from. I mean, the ancients talked about this. I mean, that is, David, to answer your question about decision-making, it's actually, it comes from the gut. Right. And so fundamentally, we're either coming from a place of fear or faith is generally the way that we operate all day. And when we're coming from a place of faith, it's because we trust. Google did a famous study on, you know, looking at their high performers and the developers, and they found out that psychological safety, as you guys know, is another way of saying, does the organization have my back? Is there a safety net? Am I running from the bear today? Or am I actually just doing really great work following my heart? And so creating this kind of environment, when you break down trust, we look at it as sincerity, competence, and reliability. And I think sincerity is the one place that you know we could probably all agree that when you take the business mask off and you just become a human being, kind of like what we're attempting to do here today in this conversation, just talk, like just be a human being. And so how many meetings do you go to where people are just being human beings? How many meetings do you go to where people don't open up and say, hey, let's just go around the horn real quick. Let's fuse the room. So here's a tactic. Every meeting should start with a fusing exercise, right? Which is how do we create a mini shared experience immediately, a quick win, where for less than five minutes, everybody has a chance to participate. Everybody has a chance to have their voice heard. Everybody gets to hear what everybody else is thinking, whatever it is. Why are we here? What happened last night? What are you most excited about in the next 30 days? What's the thing that you know really helped you get into this room? I mean, you could ask a million things. Give me one word to describe how you're feeling right now. All of those little mini tactics help do what we've just talked about, which is engage the heart and the gut brain to provide that psychological safety. That's, that's just an example. By the way, what, do you, what should you do at the end of the meeting? The exact same thing, but maybe contextualized based on what the gathering is about. But, but that type of practice, you know, if you think about football again, you know, Belichick doesn't run onto the field to tell Tom Brady what the play is. There's protocol. And we have zero protocol in the office place. I mean, we can't even get the sexual harassment stuff straight. So, I mean, talking about high performance is a whole nother bucket, you know, a whole nother ball of wax. 
one of the ideas that me and David explore in the best self-management talk is the idea of as an organization to start prioritizing and valuing the internal states of, of a human being as much as the external doing states. Yeah, you talk about those practices at the beginning and end of the meetings. We do a variety of those, uh, and it makes all the difference, right? I mean, you, you invite people to share what's your energy level right now. Uh, we talk about intentional right. energetic presence. Like, where are you in a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, is there anything you need yeah. to share before we get into talking? And and we get to really connect on that level before at, at the beginning and end of the meeting. If you did one thing listening to this, implementing some practice like that at the beginning and end of every meeting would transform your experience of team over the next 30, 60, 90 days. And I love how you're connecting it. Little practices, which seem so kind of inconsequential and almost cute and potentially soft, are actually direct pathways to access the intelligence of the heart, the intelligence of the gut. Yeah, 100%. Well, and look, you know, you guys are a very big part of our rhythms, routines, and rituals. We call it the heartbeat of the organization. So we've created an environment where we have 30 folks split between about six cities, and as a small management consulting firm, we've got to come together in a way that, you know, transcends proximity, right? And so I know you guys also have, you know, multiple offices. And how do you create a sense of unity? Well, it comes through shared experiences. And the problem is we're only really good at that in person. So, you know, 15.5, not, you know, to make this a shameless plug back to you guys, you know, David's heard me tell this story, but, you know, my very first company at 19 did a version of 15.5 just because I was, I played, you know, sports. And it was, to me, it was like the huddle mentality. You don't give a halftime speech during the huddle while you're playing the call. You give a halftime speech during halftime. And so when you think about the cadence of a week, it's just the way I thought about our little contracting business, which is every week, everybody should call in to a voicemail and say, how are you feeling? How did you do? Where do you need help? What do you got on tap for next week? And that's the way I've always thought about business. And, and selfishly, go back to the story that I started about why I wrote the book. I mean, quite frankly, I wasn't doing that. At the end of the week, I was going home with no energy left. I was totally tapped, totally spread thin, totally overcommitted. Thought, by the way, I was this endless ball of energy because I had been my whole life. And I'd come home for the weekends and like, you know, would gravitate towards my our oldest daughter, LA, because I just wasn't, I didn't have anything left. Our son had, you know, what we thought was colic or acid reflux for an entire year, by the way. I mean, the kid didn't sleep. And it, and it was hard. It was like, it was really hard to connect with him. And I knew, I mean, everybody knows when they're doing the things that they're proud of and the things that are not. And for me, I, I just couldn't take it. And so one of the things that we did back to something else that's practical that your audience might like, we created what we call better you time at the end of each week. So in your platform, you would spend 15 minutes reflecting, being really mindful about your energy state or how you're feeling and what your goals and your priorities and feedback and, and all of those things are amazing. You know, and you guys know this, I've recommended this, you know, your solution probably 150 times in the last three years, no joke. But the other part of it is, is we think, you know, imagine if you transition into the weekend. So we give everybody two hours off between three and five at the end of Friday, because let's be honest, I've explored 600 plus organizations personally. Like that's how many people we've worked with. I have yet to see someone who's highly productive from Friday at 3 to 5 p.m. It's dead time. I mean, it really just is. And so I thought, well, why don't we give that time back? And we call it better you time. So the only rule, if there is one, besides doing 15-5, um, which we do on Thursdays, by the way, because we end our day, our week on Thursdays, is you got to do something for you. Like, go walk around the block, take a yoga class, massage, acupuncture, go read a book, 
But, you know, the adage is you can't pour from an empty cup. And there's so many of us, me included, that get empty from time to time. And then we lose the capacity to care. And that is a real thing. It goes back to the biology. Like if I'm in a chronic state of stress, I will get tunnel vision, right? No one ever wanted to drive or fly with an, an airplane pilot who's stressed out because they're not going to see everything they need to see. And I want to go home like feeling like a million bucks. But how do you do that when my commute's 10 minutes and I'm, you know, I, I do 50 plus meetings a week like everybody else does. And then you come home and you're like, I suck. And then I thought to myself, you know, what's our team thinking? Like I've got an extra layer of freedom because I'm supposedly the, the, the entrepreneur, the CEO, but I bet you they feel even worse about this. So we asked them. And when we started digging in a little bit more, it was like, if we could give them the gift of not just time back, but time for them, which most of us never take, right? Because you feel selfish or you feel a little overindulgent, like, oh, wow, like me time. You know, it's almost a joke. But the more that you pour in yourself, it's you're not being stingy to anyone else. You're, you're investing in yourself so that you can invest in others. And this is a pretty dramatic paradigm shift, I think, for uh, most businesses thinking about you know, to be successful, we've got to get our employees to work as hard as, as possible for as long as possible, 70, 80 hour work weeks. And I think, you know, what you've seen is the same thing that I've seen is that when people get run down, us included as leaders, we cannot show up in the way that is the best for the organization. So Joe, how do organizations screw this up? How do they, like, what are the things that even maybe progressive companies are doing that actually work against tapping into the intelligence of the heart, gut, and brain and creating a cohesion amongst those three brains to do the, our best work? I mean, the first is they're just not awakened to this concept, right? They need to wake up. They need to wake up and realize that their people are not indentured servitudes, that we've left that century a long, long time ago, thankfully. And that people have their own free will and volition. And particularly in this kind of marketplace, right? Everybody's talking about, oh my gosh, you know, it's a talent war. We can't find anybody. It's a low unemployment rate, high skill jobs. You know, we don't have enough people for them. We'll get used to that because that's just going to keep happening. I mean, we know this, right? Because, you know, many, many uh, think tanks and research institutions have, have studied this, which is, you know, about 50% of our workforce will be in the gig status here in the next few years, 50%. I mean, that's, you know, I've seen numbers as high as 70. I've seen numbers as low as 30 or 40. But I mean, frankly, what that speaks to is an autonomy that, you know, Dan Pink talked a lot about in Drive, which is what we really all want. You know, we want this autonomy and this freedom and independence. So every time you put a rule in place, here's a quick ask, which is, you know, no different than the teacher who teaches to the C's and B students, not to the A students. All our rules are based on the C's and B's, which means we're going to attract more C's and B's. So all these rules about dress code and you can't work from home and maternity leave, we can't give more than six weeks because that's what short-term insurance covers. I mean, and most people would take advantage of it. Every time you think that this is a transaction to either win or someone loses is we're just playing the wrong game. We're, we've got to elevate to a higher level of frequency to just trust that. Even in an organization, one of our clients has you know 9,000 employees. Law of average says there's a couple of psychopaths in there. Law of average says there's a lot of people dealing with stress and trauma. You know, law of average says there's a lot of people there that may not be good faith actors. Got it. We, of course, need to protect the organization. Got it. And we can't punish the other 8,989 you know, people for 11 people. And that's what tends to happen. 
because, you know, there's pressure from Wall Street and pressure on the board and pressure to report in your 10K about this, that, and the other. But just understanding at the highest level that if you don't trust your employees, they're not going to trust you. If they don't trust you, they're not going to go all in. That's it. So it's it's starting at that very high place that executives need to kind of look themselves in the mirror and say, if I'm being intellectually honest about this, am I really in a place to trust my employees? Because look, it's a stalemate right now. You know, most organizations, you know, are saying I can't trust my employees, and most employees are saying I can't trust my employer. Someone's gonna have to give in. And you know, part of why we wrote the book Shift the Work is look, I, I don't know who has to give in in every situation, but I think everybody should have some enablement to make those things possible. So to answer your question again, is you know, they don't start with trust. I think the second thing quickly, not only do they not start with trust, but they try to copycat. And so the copycat syndrome is everything from, well, I mean, Zappos stopped paying commission, so we should. My only bone to pick with Mr. Dan Pink when he wrote To Sell as Human is you know, that was a common reaction that people had, which was, okay, we got to get rid of commission. Um, you know, Tony does, uh, you know, he tracks how long you keep people on the phone. He gives people money to quit. You know, Patagonia does 15.5, which means I have to do 15.5, which by the way, is nothing wrong with that. I mean, all, most of these things are harmless but their tactics sort of missing a bigger strategy. So the question I would ask most, you know, uh, big organizations, which is when you look at your churn, right? Regrettable turnover. When you think about how hard it is to attract new, new players, when you think of how hard it is to, you know, uh, uh, train people to be proficient, these are very measurable things that we look at today. And so then the question is, what are we trying to solve? Are we trying to keep people longer? Because we can't keep them forever, right? The average 10 years drop like a rock, and it's not just the millennials. So when we think about a more transient work environment, we, we have to start with trust because there's just no other way forward. You're not going to attract people who are the best and brightest in their field because they can go somewhere else and take maybe a little less money and have a lot more freedom, at least perceived control over their own lives. One of the things that we've found really interesting with 15.5 is, you know, essentially we're giving this platform for a consistent channel for feedback. And sometimes when people are first introduced to this, they think, you know, if they're an executive, they think, oh, my people will never tell me the truth. Or if, as an employee, I couldn't tell the truth to my boss. I'd get fired if I tell the truth. And all of those, I think, are really pointing to low trust environments. And what often happens is that there's actually a greater capacity managers, leaders are more hungry for constructive feedback from the bottom up. And, you know, CEOs are more willing to entertain truthful feedback from their people. And that everybody wins when you actually start telling the truth. So how do you move from low trust to high trust? Because I think that's one of the big crux issues is, you know, where do we how how do we really actually start to generate more trust inside of an org? So I will, uh, as I did in Shift to Work, I'll quote quickly, James Gilmore and Joseph Pine wrote a paper back in the late 90s, and it broke trust down into three components. So you have competence, which again, you can think about the brain and the head. You think about sincerity, think about brain and the heart, and reliability, the brain and the gut. It sort of always comes back to these three things in some way, which I don't think is a mistake. So when you think about reliability, I think 15.5 is a great way to think about this, which is you're setting everyone up on a consistent schedule, right? I think one of the most beautiful things about your platform is the point of contact between the manager and the employee, that one-on-one. Like our team is so excited to implement that this year in 2019 
because we know even as good as we think we are, we're not as good as we could be. And that speaks to, you know, having something digitally measured, right? I mean, one-on-ones that I'm sitting here with my papers and wrestling around and, you know, and that's good. But now that we can see things, you know, there's probably a, a downside like there is to anything, but, you know, it's like how many steps did I walk today? So it's a little bit of a game. So you're going to get consistent, more, I think, palpable, powerful one-on-one conversations if you're using a tool like 15.5, which I know this sounds ridiculous because the third time I've referenced you guys. That's certainly one piece. The, that's a, the that's second okay, piece this is, is the whole reason we're doing the podcast. Anyway. I, know, <laughs> I know. Well, I'm just trying to be a good guest here, right? So I think the other piece in terms of building trust, and this is a big one. So this comes from the heart. It's how often do the leaders say they're wrong or they don't know? Uh, you know, this, this is a, like a Bernie Brown 101, right? Dare to lead. It's, it, this is really, to me, I remember in the early 2000s, as I started my career in management consulting, one of the things that I noticed is that most of us were given this, this shield and sword, and we were told to go protect the land and go protect your company and very masculine energy, right? That, that sort of, that we've been ruling the world with. Good. Never let them see you sweat. You know, yeah, don't, yeah. don't as a leader, definitely don't show weakness. You always right. have all the answers. You always have all of your shit together. Right. And, and look, I, I'm still learning all of this. And one of the things I learned early was because I started in management consulting and started this business when I was 23, I had nothing to say, but I don't know. <laughs> Cause I was an idiot. I, I had no idea. I had no accomplishment other than, you know, a couple startup experiences in the late nineties. And I had to find a way to basically come into the room being a younger guy working with CEOs and high growth companies I had to approach it from not knowing their business to knowing their business. Like that journey of going from like not understanding something to understanding something is something I personally never learned in college or school, right? So I went from the, one of the worst high schools in the state of Maryland. We had a 23% graduation rate, right? We started with 965 freshmen, graduated 235 seniors. Okay. So then I was given the opportunity to go to Johns Hopkins University, which was like a dream come true, change my stars moment. But all of a sudden I'm back to being a neophyte. Like I don't understand anything. But what I learned in that is that there was real power in learning from others. And I know that sounds like an ABC after school special, but really, you know, the leader of the organization, if we, we're going to look back on two things, I think, and find them really funny in about 30 years. Number one, that we had these imaginary boundaries called states, nations, and countries. I was listening to a guy, I'm going to forget his, uh, Robert uh, Kushkoff or Hushkoff, I apologize, I'm saying his name wrong, but he just wrote a book called Team Human. It's like, we're all team human. Let's, let's not forget the fact that we did not come, like we don't, putting up a wall, no offense, not to be political, but I mean, we stole the land to begin with. So I don't know, it doesn't feel exactly great not letting other people in that want to come to this country, number one. Number two, we're going to find it really funny that every power structure in an organization is a pyramid and that there are these few people, namely one called the CEO who makes all the decisions. And let's be honest, the buck stops with that person. That is the dumbest, silliest way to construct cooperation in an organization. And so when you think about the top of the organization, the pressure that that puts on the apex of the organization, that person's just trying to do a good job. And part of that doing a good job is showing confidence and well, it's sort of the, we All need right, to use David, the other side. You're fired. You're no longer. 
Well, you guys don't run your business that way. It's clear. I mean, you can see it from, you know, whether it be me as an outsider or just using your system, you know, it's set up to almost not have it be that way. And and again, you know, as someone who is, you know, just also trying to figure this out, we've tried not to do that at our organization. And, you know, part of what's really hard is to get a leader to admit they're wrong and to get a leader to admit they don't know something. Those are the things, by the way, again, not sexy, but those tactics and practices to have a leader say, I mean, even you two, as smart and good looking and charming as you guys are, it's like, how many times did you say this week, I don't know? I don't know. And maybe you kind of knew, but you open up and invite space. And I'm not That's saying right. you didn't. I'm just saying all three of us likely have a little bit more room to create space. For sure. And that's, to me, one of the ways you build trust. I heard a great quote recently that all growth happens on the other side of what you know. That it really is actually about embracing the unknown, which is where the the true source of growth and unlocking our potential exists. Because, right. you know, here we are operating in what we think we know, which is actually a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of all the information in the known universe. And so it's actually stepping outside of what we know that we can gain access to so much more riches. Right. Yeah. But look, this is, you know, I'm a walking cliche sometimes, but this is a journey, right? This is not a destination. Building trust in an organization is the organization and the leaders need to decide, is this not a corporate value, not something that they need to put up on a wall, but is it something that they're going to think about each and every time that they interact with their employees, that my job is to build competence, sincerity, and reliability as factors of trust. No different than, you know, if you're married and you've read the book, The Five Love Languages, right? You can't just say, I love you more. Love is usually an equation, right, for all of us. And we usually all have a little bit of a different version of the truth there. And so, I mean, no different than, you know, I keep making fun of the fact that how bad of a husband I was you know, one of the things I couldn't understand when I came home in 2013 was I'd come home and I'd want like a big hug and a big kiss. And I wanted her to tell me how amazing I was and my day. And, you know, if you've read the book, you know how funny this is. Part of it is, you know, she receives love in time, which is like the opposite of how I'd want it. Like, I don't need to see you. I, I still love you. Right. Or, you know, acts of service. I, I still struggle with that one. Like I come home and I'm like, all right, I got my thing to do. And that helps her understand that I'm here and I'm supportive and I'm loving. Meanwhile, I used to think of it as just a chore list. It was a honeydew. Like, I need to take out the trash. I need to get the dogs. I need to, I'm like, how does that show me, show you that I love you, right? And this is the kind of language and tools that people need to think about as it relates to the relationships at work. Because again, at the end of the day, everybody's asking the same question. You guys will ask us at the end of the interview. I'll ask it, which is, was this worth it? Whether you do it implicitly or explicitly, it doesn't matter. We're all asking that same question. And the more that we ask that question and we don't have hell yes, you, you begin to build regret. And then it gets to become you know, resentment and then contempt. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why 70% of the American workforce is not engaged. It's because they can see through the internet, they can hear through their friends. There are some people that don't hate their job, don't hate their life, don't hate their commute, don't hate their boss, don't hate Monday mornings. I mean, it is your life. A third of your time is spent more or less, during the week at work. And until that paradigm shifts, which I'm hoping it does someday, this to me is the only playground and gym that we have. We, we better make it work and work well. 
I completely agree. I want to circle back to one thing that you mentioned, um, because I really think this conversation around trust, that trust is one of the key cruxes for creating an extraordinary workplace. And you said something about how, you know, if the employees don't feel like the organization, the leadership trusts them, they're not going to trust the organization. You said something along that lines. And uh, one of the things that we've practiced, one of our core values is grant trust and be transparent. And it speaks to both sides of that equation. I, I also have, have looked at and referenced the sincerity, reliability, and confidence. And I think those are great attributes for showing up and looking at yourself. Like if I'm going to make a commitment to somebody, I'm going to be sincere about it. I'm going to make sure that I'm reliable. I keep my, I have my integrity and I make sure I can actually deliver or I let them know not. Because if I fail in e- any one of those vectors, I'm likely going to break trust with that person. Now, on the other side of it, uh, we've found that granting trust, like you said, there may be some bad actors in that group of 9,000 people. Maybe it's like 10 or 11 or 50 or whatever it is, but why penalize the rest of the organization? When you actually communicate, even energetically, and say, we trust you. If, you. if you were good enough to make it through our interview process and get on this team, we start out with trust. It's not like you have to earn our trust. And right. I think that makes a huge difference. I've, I've noticed that people show up in the space of that trust in a different way than if I was maybe a little skeptical and said, all right, well, you know, people have to earn my trust. And uh, I was, I was, have you heard of Bob Chapman? He's the CEO of Barry Way Miller. Uh, he's got a website, Truly Human Leadership. Um, extraordinary CEO who acquired a number of companies over his, over his tenure. And there was a period, I think, during the recession in 2008 where you know, the board said, look, we've got to lay off a huge percentage of our staff. And he said, we're just not going to do that. He had come to the realization that it was his duty to really take care of his people in, in a very deep way. And, and, and so people made sacrifices. They said, look, we're going we're gonna to furlough people. And pe- some people who could afford it would take a bigger furlough and give it to people who couldn't. And they really brought right. the entire organization together. And I think in one of his, uh, one of his companies, they, he went in and saw that all of the expensive tools were locked up in these cages and people had to sign them out. And he realized that was communicating to the employees through you know, subtle means, like, we don't trust you with this stuff. And he said, look, we got to get rid of all that. And it actually transformed the entire culture of the, of the factory when they said, look, we're not going to lock these things up. We're not going to treat you like little children. We trust you. The more we can do that, those types of things in our organizations, I think it can shift things pretty tremendously. Well, you know, David, I think that's one of the things that, you know, we've been working together for seven years and your paradigm around granting trust and leading with high trust I think is actually one of the roots of why 15.5 has has the culture that we have, why there is the psychological safety that we have. And I'm curious, where did that come from? Like, why, why as a business leader, did you actually do decide to go against the grain and say, I'm actually going to just trust people and not come from a, a default distrust of people that I hire? You know, I think it was actually through a number of experiences in my personal life. I generally was tended to be more of a trusting person. And I had some people say, well, you know, maybe you're being ignorant. You're overly trusting and you're going to get burned. And I started noticing a pattern with people who were generally distrusting. They tended to have a lot more stories where they were taken advantage of than I did. And I said, well, this is interesting. Why, you know, maybe there's more to this. And I started to actually explore it in my personal life of seeing like, how, how, how radically could I trust, you know, within reason, not taking, you know, major risks and see what would happen. And I ran little experiments and, uh, and it, it evolved out of that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's a good question, by the way. I think 
asking people their origin story of how they began their philosophy on trust. Yeah, I mean, I think well, about that. Joe, like so for you, where did your inclination to lean towards tr- uh, trust or faith versus fear, where did that kind of arrive in your life? I don't know that there's a singular moment. I think my path got me there maybe a bit different than David in the sense that I, I went through a lot of trauma as a young person. So I, you know, I would say I went to 23 funerals by the time I was 23 and like life and death became like just a very commonplace in my life in terms of just watching people leave way before they should. And I think one of the things that that did is just shift my overall perspective and trust was just part of that value chain um, of thinking about, you know, how to think about relationships and, you know, because I was able to, in some ways, make it through not all of those, you know, unscathed, but a few of them in a way that I felt emotionally stronger that I could almost handle, as David said, you know, look, I'm going to get screwed one way or the other. You're not going to walk this life not being, you know, at some level stress tested. And so if the worst of this stress test is someone breaks my trust, that is pales in comparison to some of the things that I've been through. And personally, I hate like with a capital H not being trusted. Like when I meet people and they don't start with an A or they don't even start with a B or a C, like you're starting at negative 10, I am almost physically not able to be around uh, because I, I, I won't do the work that they want to get you back to even zero, right? I just can't do it. And so, you know, I've learned that in a lot of the work that we do corporately in just in as so much as my own competence and attributes to go in to do the work that we do. I'm, I used to be, I can do it all. And now I can do this and this and a few other things. You know, I, I love that you brought up your experience with death and with a lot of people in your life dying. You know, I suspect that it helped you start to have a sense of what's what's essential and what's non-essential of I might go any day. There's no guarantees I'm going to be around for a long time. Can you speak a little bit around how that did shift your perspective of how you want to be spending your life and what you think the lessons are for all of us in that? Uh, well, look, I, I mean, I, I only have mine to share in that I think everyone who's ever gone through life has lost something. Right. And so then the question is, you know, when they lost something, what did that mean for them? And how did they sit with that? You know, for me, I found myself at times, um, particularly when I lost my mom, who was the, the last of those 23. And it was very traumatic to how I opened up the book. It rattled me to my core in a way that I can't even, I mean, even today, I, not only would I get choked up, but it took me probably 10 years just to even forgive myself frankly, um, in, in the way the circumstances hit. And so for me, I think a lot of the training in the dojo, so to speak, was just a lot of therapy, coaching, you know, working through that and emotionally getting to a place where all of the truisms we would talk through, like live for today, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Or I've had so many of those moments pop back up in my life, um, even still, right? I mean, we've had someone here at Shift who passed about eight years ago. And it was such a tragic loss. She was 26. She had this fire and this energy. Her name was Annie O'Dell. And she was just this amazing soul. And, you know, we went a few of us to go say goodbye to her. And, you know, she was asking me about my, in fact, I've not told this story. Uh, She was asking me, my, my wife was pregnant at the time, Erica. And she said, so we were just talking in her, in her room all by herself, just her and I, this young woman who was staring death in the eye and, and just, 
wanting to have a conversation with me. And as we're in her house and talking, she said, uh, so what are you guys thinking about naming your kid? And, you know, anybody with kids knows that this is like sacrilegious to, you know, share the name early. Because if you do, everybody's going to have a freaking opinion about it. And we had kind of sat on two names that we were thinking about. And I just was like, hey, you know, say la vie. Like, let's, I told her the two names. And I'm actually going to blank on even what the second name was. And she goes, I think I like Eliana Grace better. And like in that moment, I, I thought to myself, all of the micro moments that we all have throughout every single day that inform and guide and instruct the way that we live our lives. And we don't give credence to those things. Like I will receive something from today's conversation that I don't fully understand yet. And like that type of presence, I think is the best drug in the world. And I've done a lot of them. And so for me, that moment with her really took me to a place where it wasn't just about living for today for myself. It wasn't just for others, but it was this idea of just honoring all of these little micro moments. And, you know, we're given these things in such a beautiful way at times. And sometimes they're hard and they're, they're, they're destructive and they're, but that's part of life, right? I mean, it's the, it's the cherry bloom, right? It lasts for a couple of weeks and then it's gone. And so I think that's the, you know, that's how I've tried to, to wrestle that down. Yeah, and, you know, it, to me, it speaks to the importance of us building companies where people are a hell yes to working there, where they are not compromising their life in order to get a paycheck. Right. Because I certainly don't. I don't want to waste my life working for something that doesn't actually nourish me and help help me be clear that yes, this is how I would choose to be investing my one right. precious life. Yeah, and I think you and I, Shane, are very aligned on that. And I think what is maybe different for us, you know, what I noticed, there were a lot of entrepreneurs who would leave their jobs at corporations because of that ethos, and then they would start an organization that would take care of that for themselves, but not for the rest of their employees. And I think the right. difference here right. was the saying- The founders like, get to be passionate. Right. And yes, this is, this is what I'm choosing, but employees, well, start your own company if you want this. Right. And so we said, well, wait a minute, why does that just have to be for the founders? Why can't we create an organization where everybody gets that experience? And right. I think as we're seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing, Joe, when you create organizations like that, you get radically higher performance, higher engagement, people who are committed, you know, extremely low, regrettable turnover. You know, and it starts with trust and intention and creating that type of place for people. Yeah, you guys are really, it's, it's so incredible just to spend time with other people who talk like this because it's not very natural for even all of us at any point in time. And so even just to share moments of actually free conversations about something so effortless and natural, you know, I hope when people hear this and they continue to listen to your podcast that they have you know, this is a sense of inspiration for people. And so you keep asking, you know, Shane, like, what, what do people do? Like, people need to do is they need to plug in. They need to plug into these conversations, whether it's listening or whether it's actively just talk to people about this. Because, you know, Shane, you said it, at the end of the day, you know, our parents mostly didn't have the same choices we did. And our ancestors put us here, right? It's the reason I don't like camping, by the way. Like, I think it's kind of funny to camp. Like, no offense to people who love camping, and I like the outdoors a little. But, like, I, I mean, I like room service. Like, I, a lot of my ancestors died, right, through long, cold winters, right, to not have me sleep outside anymore. And so I kind of feel like, in a very tongue-in-cheek way, I'd like to honor that. But it, it, We're laughing because we took our entire company camping <laughs> last week. We had, you know, 70 people 
and spending four days outside. Now, granted, they were in glamping it, it tents. It was glamping. It were luxury beds. And they had heaters and electric blankets. I don't want to hear it. If, the, if this was, yeah, it's not quite camping. You know what I mean. I'm talking like you're you're far enough, not quite far enough to really be in an amazing place. But my point being is you said it perfectly, which is it's we all have choice. It's at least we think we have choice. And maybe one day we'll learn we don't. But at least for today, one of the pieces of mind that we have, you know, Deepak Chopra said, it's one of my favorite quotes in the world, which is the distance between where you are and where you want to be is all the pain and suffering in the world. And, and that goes back to those micro moments. Like, are you really sitting with being, you know, not just intentional, although I think that's amazing, not just mindful, but really presence. And I think organizations, and I struggle with this, gosh, I'm talking a good game here today, but i you know, I could fall into the trap tomorrow to run into, oh, well, we got to hit our numbers for Q1. And, you know, I've got, you know, other businesses that I'm attempting to get out of the seedling stage. And, you know, it's like I have two small startups plus a main business and I'm, you know, going back and forth. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think, again, one of the things I've done selfishly is I've sat into the work that we do for others. Like, it's a purely selfish endeavor. I feel great doing this work, not only for others, but also I'm getting a chance to, it's like, you know, you can't go to the gym and spectate. You look like an idiot. I think the same thing about this work. I can't spectate. I have to be at least part of the pack, if not helping to promote and influence part of the pack. That's Otherwise, amazing point. I, you know, who's going to talk to me? Well, Joe, I, I know we could probably go on for another hour, but uh, in the interest of time, we're going to have to have to conclude here. This was fantastic. Uh, you know, I think every time we connect, I, I, I walk away uh, energized and inspired, and I'm so glad to you know to be able to introduce you to our audience and and, and really you know dig in on some pretty important topics here. Thanks so much, Joe. We'd like to thank our guest today, Joe McClinsky. You can learn more about Joe at shiftthework.com where he has some great resources, including his book and some of his companies. We'd also like to thank our producer, Counterweight Creative, our executive producer, David Misney, and Stacey Hurst, our guest coordinator. Please visit 155.com forward slash podcast. That's the number 15 and the word five for more information on today's discussion, additional resources, and special offers.